Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, both making return appearances. In moments, Sophia Japaridze will report on wage theft in the libertarian paradise of Georgia, country not state. And then Margaret Kimberly will review the historical relationship, mostly a painful and ugly one, between U.S. presidents and the black population. Georgia is a country of not quite four million people in the Caucasus Mountains, perhaps most famous as the homeland of Joseph Stalin. In the years following the dissolution of the USSR, Georgia was transformed into a libertarian paradise, a land of flat taxes and absolute freedom for business to do whatever it wants. Lately, Georgia's been in the news because a Houston-based oil company, Frontera Resources, hasn't been paying its workers for the last couple of years. That was too much even for the Georgian government, which made some vaguely threatening noises against the company. This prompted Pete Olson, a Republican from Texas, to take to the floor of the House of Representatives to denounce the country as despotic and, of course, doing the work of Russia. How Russia figures into this case is unclear, but it's become the all-purpose villain these days. Here's Sofia Japaridze to fill us in on the news from a country few Americans pay any attention to. She's a labor organizer based in Tbilisi, a place that's not very friendly to labor organizers. Sofia Japaridze. You live in a libertarian paradise, right? Uh, describe for us uh, the dimensions of uh, this this freedom that Georgians endure. Enjoy, not endure, but I guess endure is actually the right word. Yeah, I think endure is exactly the correct word. Um, so Georgia is you know, a small, tiny country in the Caucasus region. And we somehow, after the, so after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, we attracted a lot of libertarians that came here and uh, sort of helped found this hegemony of libertarian thought. But it's also part of the wider tide of Eastern Europe and the post, you know, post-communist countries being born again in these new liberal states and adopting the most like sort of fiercest, most, most zealous uh, reforms possible, privatizing pensions, you know, flat tax, uh, getting rid of profit tax and so on. Things that it's almost unheard of to that level in the United States which I consider a very capitalist country. Georgia kind of was one of the uh, more of the late comers to these reforms, but nevertheless, we have adopted them with great spirit. <laughs> and we have managed to destroy almost entire social safety net and hold no government, resp- I mean, sorry, no government or business responsible for almost anything. You can start a company in 24 hours. Um, you can move money around. There's no liability whatsoever. Um, the courts don't really work. Like it takes three years if you want, you know, if you sue. And by that time, the company can declare bankruptcy, move to another country, disappear, start or start the exact same company 20, in 24 hours. And then you can't actually hold them accountable for anything. So, yeah, there's no uh, consumer rights. There's no labor rights. Um, we had one of the most liberalized labor laws um, in the world in like 2007. We had changed somewhat in 2013. But still, it's uh, almost absolutely not enforced. Workers, people are in a very weak state. There's uh, no unemployment insurance. Um, there's no, like, no, of course, no to maternity pay. 
there's like a little bonus that gives you like which is like three hundred dollars for six months the government does and uh, the companies are not at all responsible for it yeah so it's uh it's kind of like hell really it's a damning place it's it's quite terrible and most people's uh, five-year plan is to get out like <laughs> talk to anybody they're like we're going to europe like i'm doing everything to get the hell out but now I'm sure that uh, Georgians, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, didn't all collectively have the, an Ayn Rand reading group and decide to uh, impose this libertarian paradise on themselves. So where did they come from? It looks like a lot of think tanks, things like um, you know libertarian think tanks from the U.S. I mean, U.S. is uh, unfortunately the, the source of all bad ideas. And libertarian think tanks and just also conservative think tanks uh, seem to take an interest, especially with, um, in 2003, we had a new government, Mikhail Saakashvili, better known as Misha, who also had an advisor called Ben Dukite, which who is the sort of architect of the, of the libertarian policies. And he was, of course, a guy that stole everything. He became an oligarch in Russia, right? So how the hell you know, do you become an oligarch in Russia without stealing from the people? And he stole from the people completely, you know, um, through this process of like collapse of USSR and, and, and dire poverty. He became insanely wealthy and then he preached libertarian politics. He became an advisor to um, Saakashvili. He's the one who implemented the Liberty Act, which forbids by the Constitution the progressive taxation and any taxation which, which isn't excise tax. So this is libertarian paradise, uh, but um, it's, and the population is doesn't sound very happy with it. But there's nothing that can be done. It's just uh, immobile, unchangeable. Even though Saakashvili, like his government, started all this, the the 2012 government with Bettina Ivanishvili, who's like the the billionaire, the and the other oligarch that came to power supposed to take this European road, and we have this association agreement which we're supposed to implement, like European somewhat European EU policies, which are also quite bad because a lot of free trade and and more liberalization. Though we, I have to say we went above and beyond anything the international organizations have asked of us. I would say the IMF has a more progressive politics than the Georgian government. And the current government got rid of profit tax. They have signed free trade agreements with almost every country. I, don't, I think we probably have over a dozen free trade agreements, and we don't even know what's in them. The state apparatus is is almost gone, right? Are there elections? Are there, in theory, ways that people could challenge this democratically, or is that just uh, sealed off and off limits? No, it, it can be. It's just that most people are unaware of where are the source of the problems. They understand that like the banks own Georgia, which they all have like a lot of loans at really high interest rates. Um, they know they're very powerful. You know, they know that the government is doing nothing for them. But the opposition spends most of its time blaming everything on Russian interference. So like, I'll give you an example. I was <laughs> in a cab with a Yandex, which is kind of like Uber, but like a Russian company. And you know how they like Uber takes like a certain percentage percentage of of uh, from the drivers, right? And of course, the same thing with this Yandex. And the driver was convinced that this this was because it was a Russian company that was taking a percentage. That Russians are the ones who are like taking percentage of drivers, and like and not a Russian, like an American company would never do that. <laughs> well, he'd fit right in with the Democratic Party. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Russian craze is, is, is actually, that's another problem. The U.S. embassy has really hurt us in that because they've given out a lot the last couple of years. 
they've given out a lot of grants to try to find the Russian propaganda. So there's been so many NGOs taking that money and like mostly it's not real science, you know, it's like trying to find Russian propaganda in, in Georgia. And of course this like, you know, hides the fact of the American propaganda because that's not propaganda, it's just normal. That's right? truth, it's truth. <laughs> Yeah, but they've really fueled this frenzy uh, together with this, these grants and general like American intervention here and also the nationals, to, uh, the UNM, United National Movement, which is the opposition. They fuel this insane anti-Russia craze where Russians are responsible for, you know, for capitalism. And this is pretty funny uh, coming from the country that gave the world Joseph Stalin. I know, right? Um, what, what's uh, Stalin's? I mean, this is a this is a bit of a diversion. But what is Stalin's reputation like in Georgia now? Okay, so it's actually great. <laughs> Recently, new statues have been going back up. So, but it's not because of like it's not totally because the people actually want it and demand it. I actually went to uh, Stalin's birthday in Gori, in his hometown, this year. So I saw the pro like the sort of not a protest, but like the march for Joseph Stalin. And they keep asking in his hometown, get this, in his hometown in Gori, most people that visit there, they go to the Stalin Museum. That's how most of the revenue comes in for the city. And they took down the only statue of Stalin. So it's so like people are really like angry because like you're making money of Stalin and yet you don't even give a statue to him. So his museum, like Stalin's museum, is where people go and it's it's huge. Most people who come here will go to the Stalin Museum. You know, it's like something that everyone does because it's hometown. And they also will often buy uh, wine, like clay-shaped Stalin of wine and things like that. You know, like any kind of you know, souvenir featuring Stalin. <laughs> Some capitalists even started a hotel based on a Stalin theme. So they're profiting off Stalin, yet the uh, hammer and sickle is illegal here in Georgia. You cannot actually have it out. I'm speaking with the Georgian, country not state, labor organizer Sofia Japaridze. You're somewhat in the news now. We had a, a, a Yahoo congressman bang on the floor of Congress a week or two ago uh, about uh, some sinister plot against uh, freedom. <laughs> so what's the story with this? Uh, it's, it's a U.S.-based oil company that uh, is involved? Yeah. So quickly, this company, Frontera, during the Clinton administration, the Deputy Secretary of Energy, Bill White, so one of the architects of pushing for a tough stance against Russia by securing Caspian oil. He was one of the, uh, the founders, like, like you can say, uh, of the, the Caspian oil pipeline that we have, which was specifically planned to not go through Russia to, towards more U.S.-friendly countries, so build a pipeline to get all the oil and gas out from the Central Asia towards, uh, towards the West by evading Russia and Iran. And so this guy then realized because he was also getting, he got a lot of contact working for the Clinton administration. So he found a company called Frontera Resources. And it was in Azerbaijan and it was in Georgia. But the Azerbaijani government kicked them out because they, they wanted more revenue or something like that. And so really they only have the Georgia part. The Georgia doesn't really have much oil and gas. It's pretty small and it requires apparently insane amount of investment to even drill, and then you may get nothing, you know? So it's an investment that most people, most investors aren't willing to make. But this company still exists for like 30 years. So then this guy, Bill White, he gave this company to Steve Nikandros, which was the chairman of Conoco's son, you know, who's like huge connections and, and seems to know everybody in Texas oil and all the lobbyists and all the congressmen and so on around it. And they're not making any money. So what do they do? 
in 2005, the first time, they go public. So they sell shares and they kind of make some money with that. And then in, I'm thinking in 2015, they had a similar vision. So they, what it looks like a scheme, and you probably would know more, Doug, is they sort of inflate, they give like information. They have found this unprecedented amount of, of gas and they have the equipment and the know-how to frack. Georgia is going to become an energy independent away from Russia and they're going to be actually exporting gas soon. And so these declarations like raise the stock prices and the investors that whatever came and like and they invested thinking this was going to be some kind of gold mine. But then like years later, nothing is, seems to be done. There's no actual, <laughs> there's no actual huge supplies of gas that they've been claiming. The workers and how I found out about this was about two years ago when their financial game has, is coming to an end because they're also kicked out of the London Stock Exchange as well. And it looks like even the American Chamber of Commerce kicked them out. <laughs> uh, they won't say this, but it's, it looks like it. For two years, workers, both like the sort of headquarters, the head office workers and like geologists and like sort of top, top tier experts and even just the field workers haven't been paid. And it's like every three or four months, we may get one paycheck, they say, but it equals out to about between 11 months to 14 months of unpaid wages. So... We found out about this because I've met someone and I went down to this little town, which is on the Azerbaijan border. It's really small and it's a village, really. And yeah, so I meet with the workers and the government's kind of like, well, we we're suing them, but we can't talk about anything uh, because it's confidential. Our agreement with with um, Frontier is confidential. Our loss is confidential. So we can't say anything. And they never warned any of these workers that for over two years they have been trying to sue this 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 company. And no, and it seems like for years they've known that this company looked like it was fraudulent, right? But of course, it's like typical, you know, Georgian politics of the little guy doesn't mean anything, right? We'd rather we'd rather protect our interests and and not be too open that we're actually intervening in a company, right? Because they don't want any of that record. They hide all intervention because they want to be seen as a neoliberal, super liberal, based on their you know rankings of like the most free and the less the least sort of mm, interventions by government and so on. So the government has you know every interest to keep this under wraps and it only breaks because the workers start protesting start in front of the U.S. Embassy. And since like we got involved, I wrote pieces on it. And then all of a sudden we're in the middle of this and I'm seeing U.S. congressmen write letter after letter mentioning Frontera by its name saying like, oh, Georgia's not honoring its democracy and freedom. By the way, Frontera. <laughs> like, so that was wild because I was already working on this for, you know, on this for like a couple of months. And then to see the amount of pressure that we were getting from U.S. congressmen to keep this terrible company here. You sent me a clip of some congressman from Texas, who I guess represents Frontera, invoking the Russian threat, right? That was the, that's the magic, uh, that's the magic button. Yes, they are. It's always like that because first of all, that's how they sold Frontera to investors was that it was going to be a energy independence, you know, Russia's bad. They also tried to get into Moldova and Ukraine. So clearly it's like this politics of anti-Russian as a way to sort of sell itself. And of course now it's defending itself in the same way. It's like the Russian threat. <laughs> so how are Russians at all involved in this? It looks like they're not at all, right? Because the company itself very much so tried to play financial schemes 
and they didn't actually have real product, right? They were very limited in how much their investment actually be, how much money they could make. So they played financial schemes and lost, and now they're trying to save themselves because they've also been kicked out of Moldova and had dispute with the Ukrainian government. And their investors, I believe, are suing them. You know, it's it's a pretty pretty black and white issue. But now, like in Georgia, it's the American congressman that means something. So the population and the opposition are seeing this. Oh my God, the Americans are saying that we are, you know, going down the wrong path. So it's it means a lot and scares the government. It's exactly what they're trying to do because there's arbitration right now, and they're trying to threaten the government by outside pressure and then fuel the opposition and to keep like saying, oh, you see, you're undemocratic to keep this company. Well, you know, as uh, Nancy Pelosi said, all roads lead to Putin. So um, I think this is another instance of that, right? We don't even have investigative journalists. They're willing to even investigate this. Literally every single media outlet just reshares those congressman letters, being like, you see how even the Americans are angry with us. (laughs) There's like no one that's ever actually questioning, like, why is this happening? And why would they single out one company in three different congressman letters? even have this crazy, you know, you know, Pete Olson's like Russia and Putin interfering. And it's just they think it's like so normal. that They just very normalized to blame everything on Russia and absolutely no critical skills to actually research and or nor even desire to find out if there's something more to it. And now it's conflated like, you know, actually the government isn't great. You know, I agree with some of the parts you can say of the congressmen are saying, of course, not their intention. But at the same time, when you actually put it with the frontera protecting U.S. oil and gas, then all of a sudden your intention doesn't look like it's to safeguard democracy. It looks like you're trying to protect American interest. Well, a pretty shabby one at that. Yeah, a really shabby. <laughs> Which, by the way, like the company, like people say, oh, yeah, it's like a CIA front or something like that. They always like kind of claimed it like it's gossipy way. And I was like, OK, I don't think that's it. But then, like, researching and this guy who started all and even had the former CI director as an advisor to Frontera, like, it does heavily seem like State Department and, like, U.S. interests, maybe at one point, not so much, I don't know, now. But at one point, it seemed, like, very strategic because the entire Caspian oil pipeline was very much in the U.S. America, U.S. interests to do it. Yeah, well, I guess the strategy is really to surround Russia one, one way or the other, right? Whether it's economically or militarily or, and isolate it. The source of evil in the modern world, to paraphrase Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it's, yeah, Russia gets blamed for everything. It's like, you know, I fell off the bike. You know, that joke, like, it's, it's Russia's fault. Like. So the, the five-year plan of everyone you know is to get out of Georgia, though. Absolutely. Yes. I, that's, that's the problem because with, you know, even though right now I can say they're actually labor struggles. Like we have a house occupation where people are not getting paid by this company, which um, hasn't paid them in two months and then fired them for asking for their money. So they occupied their office. Then we have, you know, the, the 92 workers who are not being paid in uh, that small, you know, oil and gas place. And we also have social workers that have been fired, 40 of them for no reason. So, there's definitely constant uh, labor struggles and upheavals, but the problem is it's not being able to reach a certain mass because a lot of these workers then leave. It's like the difficulty organizing fast food. Like there's just such high turnover. The workers aren't around long enough to organize. If uh, It seems to spread to the whole country. That's exactly it, Doug. Yeah. It's a revolving door and it's hard to keep people in one place. And so 
it's very challenging. And so political parties, like maybe like if there was a political party that could be like had more of a, you know, say leftist content. But even that's difficult because the government right now, I can tell you, is fighting us in this small oil and gas company. They don't want us involved. They pretty much told the workers not to speak to us anymore. Well, my condolences to you and your country. That was Sophia Japaridze, a labor organizer based in Tbilisi, Georgia. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Naturals Not In It by the Gang of Four from their 1979 debut album Entertainment. I'm playing it in memory of their guitarist Andy Gill, whose style is inevitably described as jagged. Gill died on February 1st. In a tribute to him on Facebook, John Langford of the Mekons credited Gill and his comrades with having inspired his own band, part of what he called the Leeds Pinkos. How I love these Leeds Pinkos 40 years later. Next, a joint celebration of Black History Month and President's Day with Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, just out from Steerforth Press. The story, as you might guess, is not a pretty one. Despite the grim content, however, the book is highly readable, sharp and uncompromising, as Kimberly's writing usually is. Whenever I feel like I'm going soft, I look to Margaret Kimberly for the inspiration to give the bastards no quarter. Aside from writing this book, she's a columnist for the Black Agenda Report. Margaret Kimberly. Of these uh, two score and some who've held this office, do you have a favorite? By which I mean, a particular, who's, who's the worst of the lot? Do you can you can you say? Well, I don't I don't have a favorite. I've uh, come away uh, more cynical than I started, but um, I would say the worst is Andrew Jackson, who is uh, Trump's, or rather Steve Bannon. I, I don't think Trump thought about it much, but uh, he was the person that uh, Bannon chose for. Uh, Trump to um, align himself with, and it's for a very good reason. Uh, Jackson is the man who has the most responsibility for the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous population in the South. The Indian Removal Act, the Trail of Tears, that was all Andrew Jackson's handiwork. The goal of that, of course, was to open this territory for the plantation economy. And uh, after the Indians were driven off, Andrew Jackson personally, he was a slaveholder himself. He owned approximately 200 people. He personally benefited from uh, this awful system. I would say he embodies the two great genocides uh, that are the foundation of this country. He's the one who really put it into effect. So I think of him as, uh, as the worst. And I have a picture of him in my pocket. 
Yes, you do on the $20 bill. And now there's this, um, and they're all on the money. You know, if you look at our money, uh, let's see, who's on the one? So it's Washington slaveholder, Lincoln, not a slaveholder, but not as good as we're told. And, you know, Jefferson's on, it's a bunch of bad people. At the end of uh, Obama's administration, there was this move to put women on the currency. And Harriet Tubman was suggested as a person who should be on the $20 bill. I don't think she's honored by putting her on money, to be perfectly frank. And then it was she should share it. It should be Andrew Jackson on one side and Harriet Tubman on the other. And I just think that is the worst idea ever. But I know there's some indigenous people who uh, consciously don't carry $20 bills for for that reason, because they, they don't want to, reminders of, uh, of uh, Andrew uh, Jackson. Yeah, they're hard to avoid. They will pop out of most ATMs, though. But as the Italian Marxist Antonio Negri once said, money has one face, that of the boss. Ah, uh-huh. <laughs> good <laughs> <I> think, line. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's the clearest thing he ever said, I think. But, you know, we go back to uh, the founder of the country, our hero, uh, the man who chopped down the cherry tree and then didn't lie about it, uh, George Washington. <laughs> but we also hear about his wooden teeth. Uh, the, the actual story of his teeth is far more grisly, isn't it? It is indeed. He um, at the time there was a uh, a fad of using human teeth to make uh, dentures, and uh, you know he had dentures made from a variety of things. But he took he paid, and I'm putting this in in quotes, some of his enslaved people to have their teeth removed for him to make his dentures. Nobody should be impressed because he paid them. I mean, what choice do you have if someone owns you? When I uh, found out that information, every time I went to the dentist, it created a new level of horror for me that, uh, you know, even with uh, anesthesia and medical care, it's a, having a tooth extracted is a, a terrible thing. Washington was very, very wealthy, over 300 enslaved people. Uh, many of them through, came through his marriage to his wife, Martha, who was a wealthy widow, and being wealthy in Virginia at that time meant being a large slaveholder. So he and uh, Martha owned uh, 300 people, some of whom were owned by her late husband's estate and then by her children. It became somewhat complicated, but it became personally complicated for him when the capital was in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania had passed a law saying that any enslaved person in the state for, I believe it was six months, became free. And there was Washington, whose uh, servants were all people he owned. So he, you know, got around it by just rotating them. He didn't let anybody stay in the state for six months. And he sent them back to Mount Vernon and then sent somebody else up. And that was in defiance of a Pennsylvania law, which was meant to correct that loophole. There's a story of one young woman, Oni Judge, who managed to uh, escape from Philadelphia and get to New Hampshire. The Washingtons found out where she was and tried to get her back, one person. So he was quite serious personally and profited personally from this system. The fact that the city of Washington, the capital, that they built a new capital at all. Why would you build a new capital? I mean, there were cities with large population centers. Why would you need a new city? And uh, you need a new city to protect slaveholding. So it's not good for that city, that capital to be in Boston or New York or even Philadelphia. It has to be between Maryland and Virginia, states that uh, whose economy depended more on slaveholding than the northern states did and I and I put it that way because slavery was legal in the North at that time. Yeah, which a lot of people forget. Um, but then the guy, uh, the guy who came to after 
Washington Jefferson. People are becoming aware of just uh, what a brutal slave owner he was, but he um, was also a profound hypocrite. I mean, he had all these crises of conscience, but nothing ever moved him to uh, free his slaves. And then even uh, he violated the terms of uh, the will at Kosciuszko. Gave him his- yes. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he's one of these people who claim to be, you know, in a state of angst about uh, slavery. Uh, although he never, I think he freed maybe two people in his lifetime. Uh, we know he had children with one of the women he owned, I think five children, uh, who was, and just to tell you how common and accepted this was, Sally Hemings was his wife's half-sister. They had the same father. She had her first child. She was still a teenager, I think 15 years old. So he had sex with a minor whom he owned. He owned uh, their estimates of 600 people. But yet he would, you know, being this erudite man, he would uh, go through this pretense of saying it was like having a wolf by the ears and you can't let it go. And But he never let anybody go. And uh, Kosciuszko, as you point out, um, left money in his will. Kosciuszko had been a slaveholder also, but he uh, freed the people he owned. He spoke with Jefferson often about the need to end this practice. And uh, he left money in his will to Jefferson and said he should use it to, uh, it was a comp- compensation for freeing enslaved people. And, and to make a long story short, Jefferson never did it. But that also speaks to this issue of them being people of their time, and we can't judge yeah, them. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a phrase you use uh, that occurs through the book, the, the people of their time. And there are people of their time who are better than that. So that's yes. really not much of an excuse. No, it isn't. No, because there, so there are people of the time who questioned. And there was a man named Edward Coles, and he was uh, uh, Jefferson's secretary, also Madison's secretary from of Virginia's slaveholder, and he took him many years to do it. He decided to free the people he owned. He left and uh, went to Illinois and uh, freed people once he arrived there. So it's not as though this is something that never occurred to anyone. It's not as though uh, the the question of whether uh, this was right or not ever came up. It did quite often, but they chose to do what was most profitable to them personally and which upheld a larger system. The two Adams, father and son, um, represent a theme that also runs through the book, which is that there were Northerners who had some sort of like anti-slavery feelings, ab- abolitionist backgrounds even. But when it came uh, to uh, their time in office, they forgot all that and uh, appeased the South. Yeah, they did. And uh, John Adams, uh, the father, he was he would brag about not being a slaveholder and said slavery was wrong. But he also was a proponent of what was called colonization, and that was sending black people out of the country. He thought that was the way to go. And that um, even though he was um, he said he was anti-slavery, he was always he was one of those who always said we have to be cautious and it can't happen too fast. And black people may kill white people. And uh, there are two um, instances of the British freeing enslaved people. First time during the revolution, um, they promised freedom to anyone who uh, joined the British forces. And many people obviously took them up on it. And again, in the War of 1812. And uh, those people who were loyal to them, they set up a settlement in uh, in Nova Scotia. And there are black communities to this day who are descended from those people. But Adams just thought this was a horrible thing, that uh, the British would do that. And 
he uh, he said these uh, people would leave Canada and come to the United States and they were going to leave lead a slave uprising and they were going to kill white people. And I did not know that about Adams. So that was uh, something new and uh, somewhat surprising to me. Uh, Adams, John Quincy Adams, after he was president, was a member of Congress. I think he's the only person who uh, uh, who did that, who ran for another office after being president. And he famously assisted the uh, the people who uh, uh, rose up on the ship, the Amistad. And uh, after a Supreme Court case, were allowed to uh, return home to Africa. But um, as a member of uh, of Congress, he also compromised uh, with the Southerners, and that's that is a running story in American history. To this day, I mean, the the, the power yes. the South has over our national politics is just a remarkable thing. Yeah, it is, and now it's uh, not just uh, that region, but this accommodation to racism. And uh, you know, we're told somebody has to be a centrist, and you know, because so many issues are connected uh, in the minds of many white people with black people, like government spending is connected with uh, helping black people only and uh, not helping any white people at all. So rather than stand up for that, rather than, you know, everybody loves to talk about FDR. He is the president who made the federal government this uh, force for, for the good in the lives of everyday people instead of standing up for that. Uh, we're told that we have to downplay it. And uh, it's a funny thing to me when, you know, when Democrats lose, they blame the left. But uh, they, I don't think they really want votes from the left at all, because all they do is talk about how they have to get the votes of uh, conservatives, i.e. racist to some degree, uh, racist white people. High-minded Northern liberals love to have the South to blame for uh, what is really their own feelings as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, you know, they're not that, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the days of, and, and who knew we'd be talking about him as a presidential candidate, Mike Bloomberg, when he was mayor here in New York City, and uh, his stop and frisk policies, which were uh, targeted uh, black people, um, uh, Latinos to a lesser extent. And I remember every poll showed that uh, black people thought stop and frisk was terrible, and most white people thought it was okay. So you're right about uh, so-called liberals. I'm speaking with Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, published by Steerforth Press. Uh, now, you mentioned colonization, and uh, a president that people revere, Lincoln, was a partisan of that, wasn't he? Yes, he was, very much so. There was an office of colonization. He, We're told, and this is one of the uh, the actual lies we're told, we're, sometimes it's mentioned that Lincoln was a proponent of colonization, and then as time went on, he gave it up. But he never gave it up, ever. Uh, as late as a couple of weeks before he was assassinated, he spoke to a, uh, a union general about coming up with a plan to send black people out of the country. There was a short-lived uh, colony in uh, an island off the coast of Haiti, Yelavash, Cow Island. And uh, uh, about 100 people were sent there. The settlement failed. Those who survived uh, came back to the United States. But he made good on what uh, other presidents had uh, talked about for decades. He actually did it and uh, was committed to doing it even after uh, the war when it was clear. Well, actually, at the time when uh, the Confederacy was finally defeated, he Lincoln wanted a country for white people. 
and he's he said this not only in the conversation I make reference to, he said it to the black leadership of the day. So yes, even the the great emancipator was not such an emancipator. And then of course uh the failures of Reconstruction, the emergence of Jim Crow, and into the 20th century. But uh, let's talk about this character who uh, still has an undeservedly good reputation, uh, I guess because he was uh, an intellectual and an academic political scientist, president of Princeton University, Woodrow Wilson, a really bad guy. He has a reputation well above uh, what he should. Yeah, he, well, he was, a you know, an unreconstructed, I guess pun intended, right? A Southerner, he remembered as a child the last days of the Civil War. He was a Virginian. When he became president of Princeton, he banned black students from attending. And I don't know how many black people were going to go to Princeton in the 1890s, but even the handful who might have shown up, he made sure they didn't show up either. And uh, when he won, he turned back the clock. He made good on uh, the uh, Southern uh, segregationist belief system. He segregated the city of Washington, D.C. He segregated the federal workforce. He had a screening of the film Birth of a Nation in the White House. Uh, and, oh, and praise uh, it to the skies, right, as a masterpiece. Oh, he did. It was, it was wonderful. It was beautiful. He said, it's all truth, the truth like, light, like a lightning bolt or something, I'm paraphrasing. As he famously said, he did nothing when there was a horrible massacre. I don't know why these things are called race riots. These were massacres of, uh, carried out by racist mobs. Uh, and this was in uh, East St. Louis, Illinois, right across the, the river from St. Louis, Missouri, where um, no one is sure, but at least 100 black people were, were murdered, homes burned, people uh, run out of town. And uh, Wilson did nothing, didn't send, there were pleas for him to send the National Guard to take some action. And he was, uh, he was silent. He didn't lift a finger, didn't say or do anything. So he was a quite a disaster. Yeah, um, we, there's a lot to cover in this registry of ghouls, so let's uh, move, move forward. Um, <laughs> but two presidents uh, who are, uh, I guess, uh, still uh, revered as good for black people, uh, early 60s, mid-60s, uh, Kennedy and Johnson. Reality is much more complicated than reputation. Yeah, Kennedy, uh, I mean, at that time, he, he why did he choose Lyndon Johnson as his running mate? You know, that was the way to balance a ticket for a northerner. Had to have a southerner on the ticket, right? And uh, he was not friendly, especially his brother, Bobby Kennedy, was, was terrible. They did not like the Freedom Riders. They tried all sorts of deals to get uh, the Freedom Rides to stop. Bobby Kennedy hated the March on Washington. His brother, the president, was a, a little more savvy, and basically it was um, the uh, mission of the march was watered down. At first it was very radical, a poor people's march, and, uh, and then it turned into something. It was still significant, but uh, not as uh, originally intended uh, before. Yeah, people forget there was like, the freedom budget, the whole social democratic agenda attached to it, and then it got really, really watered down. Yes, it did. And although, ironically, the first person to use the term affirmative action was John Kennedy. He actually invented it. But uh, it was the same thing, uh, constantly being told we need the votes of Democrats in the South and sorry, we can't do that much. I think he, because he was assassinated, he and, and in general, I think with everyone, I think Kennedy gets a, a pass in a, a lot of ways because of uh, uh, the way his presidency uh, ended, 
the first time he met with Martin Luther King, it was a secret meeting. It wasn't public. And, you know, King came, but they didn't put it in the White House logs. And it was uh, that level of uh, accommodation to, uh, to the segregationists, even then. So um, and there were no photos of the first meeting. Uh, well, perhaps they remembered that time when uh, Teddy Roosevelt invited Booker T. Washington to dinner. <laughs> yes, I know. And uh, that was quite a story. Me. It was really remarkable. It is quite a story because Theodore Roosevelt, even though he was very openly racist and talked about the superiority of the white race and the need for white people to make more babies, and he was an imperialist and all those things, he he still came from that you know that old money noblesse oblige kind of thing, and he thought, well, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be quaint to invite Booker T. Washington for dinner and when it became public, there was this firestorm of uh, of criticism. Washington was hardly a radical. <laughs> no, and he was a accommodation. That was his whole thing. Black people should not demand any sort of uh, political rights and should settle for philanthropy, basically. And and he was the king. He was the the person who determined who uh, he was the patronage king for for black people at that time. He was criticized also because he told other black people not to demand integration. But when he had the chance to go to the White House, he, he went. So I uh, showed you uh, what a hypocrite he was. But yes, there was this firestorm. And uh, then the White House backtracked and they said, well, it wasn't really dinner. He only came to lunch. And no, no, Miss, Mrs. Roosevelt and their daughter didn't attend because that was the other thing. Um, yeah, there was some there was anxiety that yeah, white womanhood was a danger. Yes, yes, yes. So then they said, well, the you know the Roosevelt ladies were not present, and uh, and then they declared it's very funny. The White House was did not have an official name. It was the executive mansion. It was the president's house. It was all kinds of things. And then they they actually declared that it was going to be called the White House. And uh, there are those who who say, and I I also don't believe it was a coincidence. I think it was an effort to ease the the criticism of uh, of that event. Okay, and then we're just about out of time here, so let's fast forward to uh, more recent days. Bill Clinton, the first uh, black president, right? Uh, well, he, you know, there's a now famous photo of uh, Bill Clinton during his campaign. He gave a speech in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Why is that significant? It was a place that was sacred to the Klan, the first Klan meetings. They had huge rallies there. And he had this, this uh, photo op at this prison in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and he's uh, he and Sam Nunn, they're surrounded by these black men in prison uniforms. Yeah, you'd almost think that was photoshopped. It's unbelievable when you look at it. It is, it is. The first time I saw it, I was pretty shocked. But he was he was terrible. He's the one who undid everything that Democrats used to brag about. He is the one who deregulated financial services. He is the one whose welfare reform, we had a right, people had a right to uh, request public assistance since the time of Roosevelt. And he consigned millions of people to poverty since that time. The case of Lonnie Guineer, he nominated her to the civil rights post at the Justice Department. When she was smeared, he didn't defend her, wouldn't let her defend herself, and he just dumped her as a nominee. So he was uh, pretty bad. But he played sax on the uh, the Arsenio Hall show. And it's a it's an embarrassment to black people that we were so easily played that uh, as much as anybody else, we can succumb to political marketing of some kind. And, and also just the fact that we feel like we must have a Democrat and that we have no option to say no. 
that uh, and black people aren't going to become Republicans. That's not going to happen. But that should not mean that we have to be silent. And uh, there was uh, no pushback, no uh, one in the so-called leadership who said these things are just not acceptable. Instead, we had people who felt like they had to go along. And that's the thing that I want to see end, this feeling that we are powerless and that we can only be supplicants. And and grateful for whatever crumbs get thrown. Exactly, exactly. And we can say no, and we have to say no. And of course, that ended with Obama. I mean, and yeah, okay. So the first real black president. Yeah, tell- yes, actually, a real black president who was attacked very often by people because they were racist. That's true. But this was the the worst, in my mind, the worst case scenario. We had a black man who still, like his predecessors, uh, wanted to assure white people that he wouldn't do anything for us. So there was the constant scolding of black people the refusal to address the needs that we had as being distinct from anybody else. We always got the, you know, rising tides lift all boats. And if uh, I can improve the economy, it helps everybody. And I don't have to say anything specific about black people. And I don't know if you remember, but he always looked irritated to me when he was asked about black people uh, as a specific group. Yeah, he's trying to leave all that behind, I think. Yes, he was. He was. That was that was his thing. And uh so we got, uh, you know, uh, another Bill Clinton, more neoliberalism, more dog whistles to, uh, to uh, white racism. But there was this great uh, love for him and people came out, people came out to vote who hadn't before. I think it's one of the reasons actually Hillary Clinton lost. I, uh, I don't think anybody was uh, acknowledging the fact that there were people. He won states like Ohio, which Democrats had had a hard time winning. Uh, because black people came out in huge numbers, but they weren't going to come out for anybody else. They didn't really have a connection with the political process and feel any allegiance to it. So when his name wasn't on the ballot anymore, they, you know, uh, there were enough people who didn't come out for uh, Trump to be able to win, uh, to eke out a victory in the Electoral College, which Democrats still will not speak against. They've been cheated out of two presidencies in the last 20 years and still don't say anything about it. But that's another book, I guess, or another story. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and and finally now, the president occupant of the Oval Office, Trump. Uh, It's really hard to think and talk clearly about him. People lose their minds uh, in in his presence. Uh, There are tremendous continuities in Trump, and Mm -hmm. he's a turn for the worse. And it's really hard to separate those things. Uh, How do you see him in, in relation to this history you're writing about? Well, he's not an aberration, and that's what I want people to understand. He's a man who has no filter, uh, who never held public office, so he does not feel the need to take part in uh, any of the niceties that politicians usually do. But he appealed blatantly appealed to white racism. Well, that's the scandal of Trump. He says aloud things that people are supposed to keep whispered. Yes, yes, and uh, and it's why he won. That's why he was able to get this Electoral College victory. I, I read once that he he got 2 million more votes than Mitt Romney did in 2012, and it's because he was uh, and is so racist. However, what that has done, in uh, it's exacerbated all of the conditions that we have been talking about, this feeling that uh, Black people must cling to the Democrats, and we have no choice because Trump. 
So uh, these this, these political failures of uh, approaching uh, the political process like uh, begging supplicants is now it's even worse. And um, the, the cynical Democrats, the ones who messed up and lost to Trump in the first place, now they're using electability. Well, so-and-so is more electable, so whoever they don't want, like Bernie Sanders, they declare to be unelectable right, without any uh, proof, by the way. And these are the same people who were wrong and said that Hillary Clinton was a shoe-in. Now they keep uh, black people silent by raising the specter of Trump and uh, saying, if you ask a question, if you demand anything, then you'll get uh, you'll get Trump again. I I believe if Trump is reelected, it will be because of uh, Democratic Party accommodation, uh, frankly, and trying to their effort to undo Bernie Sanders' campaign will lead to Trump winning. His presence, this uh, terrible, this man who's terrible, and so you know, there's no nothing positive about him. He's a, it's unique in politics. He has no redeeming social value. You can't say he's charming. You can't say he's funny. You can't say anything good about him. And this awful person is president because he's a racist. But instead of uh, talking about how to thwart him, instead of talking about what Democrats did wrong, he is cynically used to keep Black people, to keep progressives uh, from uh, speaking up to tell progressives that they should not be progressives uh, and uh, that anything that uh, the Democratic Party neoliberal establishment doesn't want is a recipe for Trump being reelected. So I guess the conclusion of this would be uh, we should think of the president uh, not as a friend, not as an ally, but uh, at best an obstacle and at worst an absolute enemy. Yes, yes, I think so. They are they are obstacles, but we have to get away from uh, deifying this this office. You know, this this uh, the uh, uh, debate in uh, the Congress about the uh, impeachment, and everyone talked about the founding. How many times did they talk about the founding fathers? Oh, in the sacred constitution. The sacred constitution. The office of the presidency and the dignity the of, like, of the oh. presidency, and which is, as you said, uh, at times a a ghoulish place where horrible things uh, took place. But we're seeing, again, rather than getting away from that, that is used as a way to uh, to oppose Trump in particular. But all that language, all that narrative needs to die. It, it really does need to die off. Um, and as President's Day approaches, this is a perfect time to bring it up. That was Margaret Kimberly, author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, just out from Steerforth Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. More from the Gang of Four, featuring guitarist Andy Gill, who died a few days ago. This is To Hell With Poverty, a 1981 single. This version was digitized from my ancient 12-inch vinyl copy. Till next week, bye. <laughs>